Hi, from PI Media, this is Curious Minds. I'm Ran Levy, and today, Richard Stallman and the history of open source and free software, part one. I want to kick this off with a confession. Richard Stallman has always been one of my heroes. Richard Matthew Stallman, also known as RMS, is considered one of the greatest hackers in computer history. Software he wrote in the 1970s is still being used in the present day. On the big screen, when we see a bearded hacker who spends his nights by his computer and sleeping on the bed next to it during the day, we're actually looking at the mythological figure of Stallman, with his untidy beard and his long grayish hair. He was partly an inspiration for this cliché. Stallman is also regarded as the father of the open source movement, a social technological phenomenon that inspired the creation of many of the programs we use daily, the Android operating system, WordPress, the Firefox browser, and many, many others. By the way, Stallman very much doesn't like to be called the father of the open source movement. We'll get to that later in the show. When I decided to write an entire episode about the history of the open source movement, I also took the opportunity to make an old dream come true by interviewing Richard Stallman himself. Hello. Hello, Mr. Stallman. Yes. Hi, hi, this is Ran Levimum Israel. How are you? Oh, hi. This interview, how should I put it, didn't go as I'd expected it. The conversation with him made me doubt a few of the premises regarding the world of technology while illuminating sides of his personality that I never knew about. Richard Stallman was born in the U.S. in 1953. Even as a child, he demonstrated an anti-establishment attitude and rebelliousness. His behavioral problems made him switch schools every now and then, and that left him socially as a bit of an outsider among children his age. He even admits that he never learned how to get along properly with other people. Computers, though, were a completely different story. Believe it or not, as an elementary student, Stallman read computer manuals and wrote software. Of course, it was the 1950s and 60s, days when computer access was a rare privilege, so the software he wrote was all on paper. Only in high school did he actually get to see a real computer, but at that point he already knew computers much better than most teenagers. To say that Richard Stallman is a brilliant person is an understatement. He studied physics at Harvard. Although he enjoyed the classes, there was one thing that upset him greatly. There weren't many computer terminals in Harvard back then, and students were desperate for any computer time they could get. Many professors held computer terminals inside their offices, but they would often lock the doors at night. It was a huge waste. 
The terminals went unused for many hours, like precious electronic stones, while outside there were those who really, really wanted to use them. Not far from Harvard is MIT, the world-famous technological university. During his studies in Harvard, Stallman visited the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, where he witnessed a completely different attitude. If one of the professors kept a computer terminal in his office and dared to lock the door at night behind him, the students would literally break open the door, sometimes with makeshift battering ramps, and take the computer. The Artificial Intelligence Laboratory was the home for many young students who were passionate about technology. At the time, they were known as hackers, although the term had a slightly different meaning compared to today. Back then, hackers were those who liked to research deeply into the guts of any system and change it. It certainly didn't have the negative connotation it holds today of someone who steals information or does damage. The hackers of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory wanted to create interesting things using the tools they had, and they didn't have any tolerance or patience towards those who tried to restrain them. For Stallman, this was love at first sight, and he quickly joined the lab. Life at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory was intense. The professors and their students used the lab during the day, and as soon as they left, the hackers took over and worked all night. They ordered Chinese food at 3 a.m. and continued working on their software until dropping onto folding beds to catch some sleep. Together with other programmers, Stallman developed software and ideas that are considered to be milestones in the history of modern technology. For example, he created an important algorithm for the artificial intelligence field and a hugely popular text editor named Emacs. Stallman loved every minute at the lab. When he graduated from Harvard, making the dean's list of course, he registered for his master's degree at MIT, mainly so he could continue working at the lab. He was enchanted by the camaraderie and the spirit of cooperation. The lab was a place where people worked together for a common cause and for the good of the public. The atmosphere was very freewheeling and cooperative. We were using and developing our own operating system, which for me was the absolute ideal job. I was getting paid to do what I would absolutely love. I was doing this work to, as part of a, a sort of a, a group of other developers without a sharp boundary. There were some other people who were also staff at the lab improving the system, but anyone was welcome to improve the system. We were happy to get contributions from anybody, and they didn't even have to have a connection with MIT. We were happy when anybody else showed up and started using the system in a, if he did anything that was sort of thoughtful, and if they started to contribute to the system too, well, that was great. And we were happy to share our software with people outside MIT. We were glad when they thought it was useful. There was such transparency and openness within the lab that people often read and answered each other's emails. 
Stallman told the following story in a talk he gave in 1986. Quote, I remember one interesting scandal where somebody sent a request for help in using a certain program that was developed at MIT. He sent to one of the people working on it a request for some help and got an answer a few hours later from somebody else. He was horrified. He sent a message, so-and-so must be reading your mail. Can it be that mail files aren't properly protected on your system? Of course, no file is protected on our system. What's the problem? You got your answer sooner. Why are you unhappy? Of course we read each other's mail so we can find people like you and help them. Some people just don't know when they're well off. End quote. But this ideal environment didn't last forever and MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory was a victim to its own success. The majority of computer users during the 1950s and 60s were from the academic world and were used to sharing ideas and software with each other. But during the late 1970s, when computers began spreading in the business sector, many new companies developed proprietary software for industrial needs, and it was only natural that these companies offered their software to customers in exchange for a payment, instead of giving them away free. This signaled an end to the culture of free software exchange. These companies also offered very high salaries to the MIT hackers, whose talents were now in high demand. Within several years, the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory became empty. Not physically, of course. Professors and their students still used the facility, but the anarchist hackers were nowhere in sight. Even though Richard Stallman stayed at the lab, he soon realized that the spirit of the place had changed. The remaining programmers weren't as thrilled to share knowledge and creative solutions with each other. In the brave new business world, knowledge was power. Knowledge was money. The high-quality software that programmers used to write for their own common use at the lab was replaced by proprietary and mediocre software. And as for reading other people's emails, that was simply out of the question. Stallman continued his daily tasks, but something inside him wished to rekindle the spark of the majestic atmosphere the lab once had. In the early 1980s, Stallman found a way to do so, and the key to rekindling the spark was by sharing. CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN, and People Magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. 
So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit outbrain.com for more info. In the programming world, the word sharing has a deeper and more complex meaning than its daily use among the public. I'll explain. Let's assume that I am a chef at a restaurant. Tonight I am making a wonderful dish of spaghetti bolognese, my mother's legendary recipe. I serve the dish to the table and my guests simply cannot get enough of my spaghetti. You could say that I shared the dish with my guests, but that wouldn't be completely true. I shared the dish, but I didn't share the recipe. By not telling them how I made the spaghetti, I'm preventing them from trying to make it themselves. Only by sharing the idea of spaghetti bolognese and my mother's special way of making it can they hope to recreate my dish, alter it, and create a new, perhaps even more delicious dish than mine. In the programming world, this recipe is called the source code. It's the specific list of instructions that the programmer created for the processor to execute. These instructions are then transformed via a special process to a regular software that we, the users, are familiar with. A game, for example, starts out as a long list of instructions. I can share with someone a copy of a game I wrote, just as sharing a dish of pasta, but only when I share the source code will it be considered full sharing. A programmer that will get access to my source code could understand the techniques and ideas I used, learn from them, and perhaps create a new and improved version of the game. But that, of course, is exactly the reason why business companies refuse to share their software's source code. A program's source code is often considered to be a top industrial secret and is closely guarded, since what game company would want its competitors to develop an improved version of its game? Stallman knew that the key to creating a community of programmers, all sharing the same passion for technology and the will to contribute to a common cause, is by creating an environment of full cooperation without secrets or restraints, meaning the programmers needed to share the source code they are writing. In other words, this is exactly the difference between a group of people eating prepared food and having a not-so-interesting conversation to a group of chefs standing around the kitchen table and passionately debating whether rosemary should be added to the dish or rather oregano. Together, they'll create a wonderful and unique dish that otherwise would not have existed. But I wanted to create, once again, a community in which people would work together, contributing in the spirit of scientific cooperation to making software for everyone to use. So I realized that the only way we could have such a community is if we were using free software. We, ha we had to make sure that all the software we were using was, in fact, free, and then we could have such a community. But there wasn't sufficient free software, so that was my job. I had to bring into existence 
a free software operating system, but this time one for modern computers instead of for a 1968 computer design. So that's what I started to do. I announced the development of the GNU operating system, spelled G-N-U, and asked for people to join and help. An operating system is a vital instrument in the process of creating new software. It's the foundation on which a software operates, just the same as roads, signs and stoplights are the foundation of transportation. The most common and popular operating system at the time was Unix, and the majority of programmers were familiar with it. Unix was owned by AT&T, and whoever wanted to use it had to pay the company. Stallman wanted to create an operating system that was similar to Unix, but one that was free, that is, not proprietary. In 1983, he released a statement in one of the online discussion groups and announced his new project, the GNU project, an endeavor to create a new modern operating system. The acronym GNU stands for GNU is not Unix. This is known as a recursive acronym because the letter G stands for the acronym itself. A year later, in 1984, Richard Stallman left MIT in order to concentrate on his project and established an organization called the Free Software Foundation, or FSF. He wanted to institutionalize the idea of sharing, which was so common during the 1960s and 70s, and create a social movement with a clear ideology, a movement whose members support and assist each other. Needless to say, the ideology encouraged people to create and share free software. Now, here's Stallman's definition of a free software. Remember that programmers count from zero, not from one. There's a definition of free software. A program is free software if it gives you, the user, the four essential freedoms. And these are freedom zero, freedom to run the program as you wish for whatever purpose you have. Freedom one, freedom to study the source code of the program and change it so it functions for you the way you want it to. Freedom two, the freedom to make exact copies and give or sell them to others when you wish. And freedom three is the freedom to make copies of your modified versions and give or sell them to others when you wish. It's important to note that Stallman takes every opportunity to stress the fact that the word free in free software refers to freedom rather than free of charge. The word free is has multiple meanings. When I use it, it means free as in freedom. I am careful that when I mean zero price, I never say free. I say gratis, because I want it to be clear to people what I mean. Why does Stallman emphasize freedom as a main and vital characteristic of a software? In all the years I have been working as a software engineer, I have read countless books and articles about software engineering, all full of advice and techniques for creating a good piece of software. But the word freedom was never mentioned in any of them. So what makes it so important according to Stallman? 
Well, he believes sharing knowledge and ideas is the key to innovation in software. A proprietary software, one where the user has no access to its source code, might be useful, but it contributes nothing to innovation. In fact, it even blocks it. Let's assume that I'm a programmer and that one day I realize that the software I'm using, Microsoft's Word, for example, could be significantly improved by adding some feature. This feature might be a major one, such as adding support for a new foreign language, or it might be a minor one, like adding a new icon. Since Microsoft won't give me access to a source code of Word, there's no way for me to make those improvements. I could, of course, rewrite a better version of Word, but that's not really practical. It would take me years of work in order to create the software from scratch when all I wanted to do was add a single feature. This is a common example of how a lack of access to the program's source code blocks innovation. The lack of freedom could also be harmful in other, less obvious ways. At first glance, we might assume that our laptops, tablets, and smartphones allow us infinite freedom. We can send emails, surf the web, play games, pay our bills. We can do so much and more. But even if the majority of people are not aware of it, this infinite freedom is nothing but an illusion. On your iPhone, for example, you could play games, but only those offered in the App Store. Google gives you a free email account, but reads every word you write, and so does Facebook. Modern software is like a prison with transparent walls. You think you're free, but if you try to leave, you'll soon find that you're actually locked in. Richard Stallman claims that this invisible prison has a negative effect on us as individuals and as a society. In the same talk from 1986, he said, quote, When a person spends a lot of time using a computer system, the configuration of that computer system becomes the city that he lives in. Just as the way our houses and furniture are laid out determines what it's like for us to live among them, so does the computer system that we use. And if we can't change the computer system that we use to suit us, then our lives are really under the control of others. And a person who sees this becomes, in a certain way, demoralized. It's no use trying to change those things. They're always gonna be bad. No point even hassling it. I'll just put my time and when it's over, I'll go away and try not to think about it anymore. That kind of spirit, that unenthusiasm, is what results from not being permitted to make things better when you have feelings of public spirit." End quote. Stallman views controlling a software as a part of a power struggle between common citizens and the powerful forces of society, a class struggle whose terminology is almost identical to older social ideologies like Marxism. If the users don't have all of those freedoms, then they don't fully control the program, which means it's the program that controls the users, and the owner controls the program. So that program is an instrument that gives the owner power over the users. That's why non-free software is an injustice. And this power 
is a constant temptation to the developers. Nowadays, it, the ethical standards of the developers of proprietary software have gone down through the floor, and it's standard practice to make non-free software spy on users, intentionally stop them from doing the things they want to do. This is called DRM, Digital Restrictions Management. And there are also back doors that accept commands from somebody else to do something to the user. And some proprietary programs are platforms for censorship. Stallman's ideas regarding freedom and cooperation gained a lot of traction, and the free software movement became bigger and stronger. Its members organized conferences, published online magazines, and created group chats on the Internet. Other programmers joined the movement in order to help him with the GNU project, which was more certainly needed, since writing an operating system is a complex task that demands thousands of hours. But despite all the volunteering spirit, the cooperation, and the help he got, in the early 1990s, Stallman found himself facing a serious problem. Roughly speaking, an operating system can be described as having two parts, a kernel and an envelope, also known as application layer. The envelope holds the software that computer users work with, for example, a calculator, file explorer, or drawing software. The kernel of an operating system is the part that connects software to the hardware, the processor, the memory, the disk, and more. If we think of an operating system as a theater play, then the envelope is the stage and the kernel is the mechanism behind the scenes. The lighting technician, the set manager, makeup artist, and all necessary service providers that are needed to run the show. Since the kernel is often the most complicated part of an operating system, Stallman and the Free Software Foundation members decided to write it last. When they were done with the envelope and were finally ready to write the kernel, it turned out that the task was even more complicated than they anticipated. The kernel, named Herd, was too complicated and unstable, and at a certain point it was clear to everyone that it had no hope of replacing the more popular operating system Unix. The GNU project was stuck in technological quicksand that threatened the entire free software movement. Although the envelope was ready, there was no kernel, and without an operating system, it's impossible to write free software, and writing free software was the whole point. Help came from an unexpected source. In August 1991, a young Finnish student named Linus Benedict Torvalds posted a message on one of the group chats. Quote, Hello everybody out there using Minix, an operating system. I'm doing a free operating system. Just a hobby, won't be big and professional like GNU. This has been brewing since April and is starting to get ready. I'd like any feedback on things people like or dislike in Minix as my operating system resembles it somewhat. Any suggestions are welcome, but I won't promise I'll implement them. Smiley, Linus. End quote. Despite his modesty, Torvald's amateur operating system was a source of interest to many programmers, who helped him improve and expand it. 
It was later named Linux, a combination of his name Linus and Unix. As mentioned, Richard Stallman was just looking for a suitable replacement for Herd, the failing kernel of the GNU project, and found Linux to be very interesting. The Linux operating system was completely new and therefore didn't contain any code from Unix or other proprietary software, a necessary demand for any free software. At first, Stallman was reluctant about using Linux since Torvalds announced that his operating system could only support a certain type of computer known as AT. This meant that Linux was limited to only one computer model and hence was not completely free. But two years later, when Stallman realized the advantages of Linux's technology, he changed his mind and Linux replaced Herd as the kernel of the GNU operating system. Since then, the operating system is called GNU slash Linux to denote that the envelope is GNU while the kernel is Linux. You shouldn't exaggerate that. Basically, we've tried to develop lots of programs, and some of them we succeeded, and some of them we didn't. The important thing is that we did get a free kernel, because someone else wrote one. Adding Linux gave the GNU project a powerful tailwind. Linux was a very successful kernel, and together with the software developed by Stallman and his colleagues, it created a strong, sophisticated, and reliable operating system that proved the validity of Stallman's ideas, that full cooperation of knowledge and ideas could produce quality software to compete against proprietary software sold by Microsoft and others. Many new members joined the free software movement and Richard Stallman's reputation as the prophet of this new and exciting movement was accordingly established. But even though Linux was an important addition to the GNU project, it also turned out to be somewhat of a Trojan horse. The significant changes Linux created, or to be more accurate, the changes brought about by the young programmers it attracted, were about to create a serious rift within the young community of the free software movement. This rift and its consequences would be the focus of our next episode. We'll talk about the split that occurred in the free software movement, which led to the establishment of the open source movement. We'll also answer the question, why is Google trying to kill Android? And we'll also get to know Richard Stallman better. What does the guru think of modern technology? You might be surprised to find out that he hardly ever uses it. All this and more next time on Curious Minds. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Richard Stallman for the interview he gave me and per my promise to him, this episode and the next one will be available to download in Orgvorbis format. If you care about free software, please consider donating to the Free Software Foundation at www.fsf.org. A big thank you to our listeners Phil and Frank for pointing out two mistakes I've made 
in the previous episode about the ancient Indo-European language. I'm always grateful for corrections and additions to things I've said on the air. And lastly, a big thanks to Jeff Schroeder, who left this amazing review about the show on iTunes. Jeff wrote, quote, I listen to a lot of history podcasts and subscribe to Curious Minds for a change of pace. What a great choice. Ran and co-hosts cover a wide range of topics, from LSD to maritime navigation to the origin of our languages. I find them uniformly excellent. And being an astronomer, I'm especially qualified to applaud their new series within a series of astronomy shorts. I eagerly await new episodes. End quote. Jeff, what can I say? This sort of feedback makes all the hard work worthwhile. You've made my week. Thanks. As I do on almost every episode, here's a recommendation about a new podcast you might have not heard about. This time it's the Alt and Indie Rock podcast with host Drop D. Hello everyone, this is Drop D from the Alt and Indie Rock podcast. Join me every month for the ultimate mixtape of new, undiscovered, up-and-coming artists from all parts of the world. If you love your rock music, whether it be grunge, stoner, progressive, alternative or indie, then make sure you subscribe to us via iTunes. Or check us out on Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud. We also give away great prizes on every show. So for more info, head over to altandindierock.com. So indie music lovers, head on to altandindierock.com and check out Drop D's podcast, altandindierock.com. You can win a Chaotica eyeball microphone cover, a vinyl record, or a t-shirt. I'm always looking for great ideas for new episodes, so feel free to drop me a line at ran, R-A-N, at cmpod.net. Our website, cmpod.net, has all the show's previous episodes, as well as a place to subscribe to our mailing list and get notified each time a new episode is out. CMPod are Kelly O'Loughlin, editor and co-host, Nir Sayag is our sound engineer, Danny Timor is in charge of BizDev, and me, Ran Levy, producer and writer. See you again next week. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.